Hello, and welcome back to 90.5 WESA's Good Question podcast, where we explore what you've always wondered about Pittsburgh. Today, we'll visit the city's east end and learn about the history of Squirrel Hill and why there are fire hydrants scattered throughout Frick Park. Then we'll celebrate pioneering Pittsburghers by looking at the lives of the city's first black and first female counselors. She was someone who, you know, was just a really strong woman and who really cared about Pittsburgh and who really cared about um, family. First up, how did Squirrel Hill get its name? Stay with us after the break. WESA's Good Question podcast is made possible with support from Eisler Landscapes, the CPA firm Sisterson & Company, and Baum Boulevard Automotive. Squirrel Hill is Pittsburgh's largest neighborhood, with more than 27,000 residents in its nearly four square miles. From the sprawling fields of Shenley Park, to the shopping on Forbes and Murray Avenues, to the architecturally stunning churches and synagogues, Squirrel Hill contains a lot of Pittsburgh history and culture. Good question asker Roger Rafson lives in the community and wondered how it got its name. It's just been a curiosity because obviously we are high up, we are on a hill, that part I get, but the squirrel part was always curious to me. Sure, there are squirrels in the neighborhood, but there are squirrels throughout Pittsburgh. Squirrel Hill's origins begin with the Ice Age when glaciers cut through the region. Squirrel Hill Historical Society Vice President Helen Wilson says the name probably comes from Native Americans, who once used the elevated region as a temporary hunting ground, though it's difficult to prove. There's some some references that we can't prove that say it was named by the Native Americans because of all the squirrels. But not everyone was into the moniker. As Squirrel Hill began to develop into a neighborhood, some people didn't like the name and they wanted to call it Highland or Viewland. By the mid-1700s, as French and British trappers and traders roamed the region, treaties were pushing Native Americans out of the area. British farmers soon followed. Squirrel Hill Historical Society's Tony Novena says the first log houses were built in the late 1700s, including the well-known Robert Neal Log House in Shenley Park. But it's one of the earliest examples of a permanent settlement in western Pennsylvania. He says when preservationists tried to improve the Neal structure in the 1960s, it was so unstable that it fell down. So technically, the log house is a reconstruction around the original fireplace and chimney. It's even being considered for a spot on the Lewis and Clark Trail experience. Research that they submitted to us from done by the National Park Service suggested that Meriwether Lewis, when he made his last trip to Pittsburgh, stopped at the Neal Log House to water his horses. <laughs> As the population grew in the late 18th century, industry arrived. Helen Wilson says there was a salt works in Nine Mile Run, where brine wells were drilled by hand near the mouth of the waterway. Saline Street is a nod to this industry. Coal mined in the area ensured that there was a way for residents to fuel the fires that would boil salt from water. Because you could not live without salt. That's the only way you could preserve meat over the winter. While Pittsburgh continued to expand its industry with iron, steel, and glass, wealthy residents were attracted to Squirrel Hill. It was on a trolley line, far from the smoky riverfronts, and had plenty of land to build mansions. Many streets in the neighborhood are named for historic landowners including former Congressman Walter Forward of Forward Avenue and glassmaker Thomas Whiteman of Whiteman Street. Good question asker Catherine Egan wondered about another roadway. I was stuck in traffic on Beacon Street in Squirrel Hill, and I wondered, was there ever a beacon on Beacon Street? 
Mac Booker wondered the same. It never occurred to me until relatively recently to wonder why you would have a street called Beacon Street in the middle of Squirrel Hill. Helen Wilson of the Historical Society says it is the highest point in the neighborhood at 1,200 feet above sea level, so maybe. So it's possible that that could have been a hill where they would have set beacon fires as signal fires. But most of her research suggests it's more likely after a neighborhood in New England. They needed a high-sounding name for it, so it's patterned after Beacon Hill in Boston. <laughs> Squirrel Hill is now considered one of the most diverse neighborhoods in Pittsburgh. Jewish families began moving there in the 1910s, and, unlike in other cities, did not move away when many other communities fled to the suburbs after World War II. In recent decades, meanwhile, Squirrel Hill has seen a boom in its Asian population thanks in part to the draw of Carnegie Mellon and Pitt. Today, 17% of the neighborhood's population is Asian, making it a cultural hub for the region. And yes, you can still find a lot of squirrels. WESA's Good Question podcast is made possible with support from the CPA firm Sisterson & Company, Baum Boulevard Automotive, and Eisler Landscapes. Frick Park's 644 acres include extensive hiking trails, hundreds of species of wildlife, and cast iron fire hydrants that seem out of place. Early in the pandemic, stir-crazy Pittsburghers took advantage of the city's many green spaces. Good question askers Jenna, Liz, and Daniel took notice of the peculiar man-made objects along the park's paths. During quarantine, um, I've been walking through Frick Park a lot more, particularly exploring new trails. When you get, get deeper into the woods, there start to be fire hydrants. Not anywhere close to any roads. Some of them are near trails, but I don't think I've ever heard of a fire truck driving down any of the trails of Frick Park. The fire hydrants vary in appearance. Some have sunk into the soil, some are red, others are green, but all are rusty and smaller than the hydrants currently installed around Pittsburgh. But of course, they haven't always been there. Frick Park, like so many locations in this old city, has a storied past. Pittsburgh Parks Conservancy's Susan Rademacher says chiseled rock formations and old round millstones are still hidden within Frick's trees. These stories all reveal the way human beings interact with the landscape, the way we exploit it and the way we treasure it. And this park represents that full range. In 1882, manufacturer Henry Clay Frick purchased the land. As many barons of the industry did at the time, he was attracted to it because it was far away from the smoky, smoggy steel mills. When Frick's daughter Helen had her debutante party as a teenager, Rademacher says she requested that her father donate the acreage to the city to become a park. She was inspired by Teddy Roosevelt, who was a personal friend of her father's and who came to dinner at Clayton um, with all these ideas about um, preserving nature, establishing national parks. Upon Frick's death in 1919, the city started the process of making the land into a public park. A country club had been adjacent to the area, after a few decades, Rademacher says nature took over the golf course portion, but... When you leave a golf course alone and it starts to grow up, um, it gets very weedy, there's a lot of brush, and so there were a lot of brush fires happening in the 20s and 30s in the park, and uh, so they decided that they should put hydrants in. It wasn't understood at the time that fire could be a cleansing agent for wildlife areas, so fire department officials deemed it necessary to put in easy water access nearby. There had been a residential neighborhood between the Frick property and the former country club, but Rademacher says those houses were not the motivation for the hydrant's installation. Well, they're not left over from like when there were houses there or anything like that. They were a system put in, intentional. According to the Pittsburgh Water and Sewer Authority, the hydrants were installed around 1933. They still have connected water mains, 
but a spokesperson for PWSA couldn't say if they were functional. Still, the hydrants found mostly near the southern portion of the park have become synonymous with Frick Park's identity. Christine Ixick with the outdoor gear store Three Rivers Outdoor Company says the fire hydrants are included in a poster the business sells about the park. It's just a unique thing that makes kind of, you know, Frick Park quirky. Parks Conservancy Susan Rademacher doesn't see the value in removing them. I think the value is in shedding light on them and understanding sort of where we came from, how we've adapted, um, especially in terms of our environment and what better choices we can make once we love it and we know it loves us back. Visitors to the park can find most of the hydrants along Fire Lane Trail. Our next story takes us out of the East End and back to downtown, specifically City Hall. Stay with us after the break to learn about Pittsburgh's first black and first female city councilors. WESA's Good Question podcast is made possible with support from Baum Boulevard Automotive, Eisler Landscapes, and the CPA firm Sisterson & Company. Listener Christina Sohovi of Mount Washington is interested in Pittsburgh history and sent 90.5 WESA two good questions. Who was the first African-American on Pittsburgh City Council, and who was the first woman? Mainly it's just because I'm curious about the diversity in the city. I'm, I'm very interested in local politics and local history, and this isn't something that I know about. First up, the story of Pittsburgh's first black city councilor, Paul Jones. Jones isn't as well-known a name as some of the other political leaders in Pittsburgh, but University of Pittsburgh history professor Lawrence Glasgow says his tenure was significant. Well, I'd say Paul Jones has a good spot in the pantheon of black political figures in the history of Pittsburgh. Jones was a lawyer who was appointed in 1954 by Mayor David L. Lawrence when another council member took a job as county sheriff. Glasgow says he'd already been serving in the Pennsylvania state legislature, and once on council, he was re-elected twice. He was elected at a time when council seats were citywide. He wasn't representing the black community or a black neighborhood, and so his achievement was that much more remarkable. There isn't a lot of evidence that Jones faced pushback for being African-American, but Glasgow says that might be due in part to the machine politics at the time and who appointed him. Pittsburgh was machine politics. If Davy Lawrence said, this is what we're going to do, boys, that's what we did. Glasgow says when Jones was on council, he sponsored the initial legislation to tear down the Lower Hill District for redevelopment. Now today we think, oh my God, what a mistake. And it's sort of portrayed as the white power structure coming down on poor, weak black community. In point of fact, the black community was originally very much in favor of urban redevelopment. When public housing was first proposed, Glasgow says it was portrayed as an opportunity for black families to move into better homes that black workers would build. But it didn't work out that way. So they thought they would get new and better housing, and they thought they would get jobs. They got neither. But Jones wasn't around long enough to see the project fail. He died suddenly of a heart attack in 1960. Glasgow says Jones is remembered for his contributions to Pittsburgh's civil rights movement, fair housing initiatives, and workers' rights. He was a man of great integrity, honesty. He always wanted to have a full and open discussion in council about whatever issues we're, we're discussing. The tenure of then-Mayor David Lawrence included many pivotal decisions for the city, some controversial and others memorable for more positive reasons. Just two years after he appointed Paul Jones to become the first black city councilor, he did something else unheard of. He appointed a woman. In the 1950s, Hazelwood resident Irma DeShenzo was secretary and chief examiner for the city's Civil Service Commission, overseeing hiring and employment of government workers. 
Her great-granddaughter, Jeannie Pursue, says Deshenso was devoted to her community. She was someone who, you know, was just a really strong woman and who really cared about Pittsburgh and who really cared about um, family. I mean, family was, you know, really, really important. When there was a vacancy on council in 1956, Mayor Lawrence tapped Deshenso. Mayor Lawrence said to her one day, you know, Irma, we should we need more women in politics. We should really have a woman on um, city council and we need to. And she was like, that's a great idea. I totally agree with you. Who are we thinking about? And he was like, uh, you like <laughs> I was actually thinking you would be a good person. Rising to council was a natural step for Deshenso. And Mayor Lawrence recognized that. It started with, you know, civic engagement as a voter, as a volunteer, as someone who was invested in her family and her community, her city. And then ultimately he saw her as someone that could be that change and then made it happen. After her appointment, Deshenza was reelected until she died in a car accident in Penn Hills in 1970. She made sure funding and zoning were in place as chair of the Parks, Recreation and Libraries Committee. When she died, Deshenza was replaced by the second woman on council, Amy Ballinger. Since then, nine women have served, three of whom are current members. After reporting this story, I spoke with Deshenza's great-granddaughter Jeannie Pursuit again. She had been contacted by an archivist at the University of Pittsburgh who wanted to document Deshenza's career. It was a neat outcome to a story and means everyone can access her life and the impact she had on City Hall. That's it for today's Good Question podcast from 90.5 WESA. I'm Katie Blackley. Stay curious. Stay curious.